Hey ladies, how you doing out there, you gangsters and you senior citizens of the world? I just want to let you know that I'm here. I'm starting my new podcast with Anchor. It's free, so I thought, why not give it a try? There's creation tools there that allow you to edit your own podcast right from your phone or computer. And Anchor will distribute my podcast, so it will be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more. You can also make money from your own podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, at home. During the coronavirus epidemic, this is where we're going to be. So, it's a mandatory call to action that we... Take anchor. Crazy news for y'all. Times is hard, and it's looking like the great Monique has finally gave in. Word on the street is Monique allegedly apologized to Oprah so she can pay some of them damn bills. And if this is true, we need to applaud Monique for being a bigger person, even though she lost all that weight. In this video, we gonna go through the history of Monique and Oprah's drama so we can finally start to hear it. That's why y'all need to stay tuned because this stream about to get better than your grandmama baked macaroni and cheese. A lot of people feel like Oprah need to be the one apologizing to Monique, especially for having her family on the show, telling all Monique business for entertainment purposes and that was wrong. Monique had every right to be mad, but now Monique doing bad and she can't afford no more roles she ain't got no roles no more her roles was gone way before she lost all that weight now she ain't got no roles they said she showed up to her audition for orange is the new black wearing all green she told them people green is the new black y'all gonna have to pay me she couldn't even find no work at showtime at the apollo that's why she making her own show showtime at the apollo g's because now she about to show her ass and apologize to everybody but sometimes you gotta do what you gotta do to make a living we about to get into this news, but before we do that, I need y'all to hit that like button and subscribe to the channel, baby. Also, hit that notification button, y'all. Don't forget to show me some love, because all I ever do is show y'all some love. You understand me? Also, hit that cash app, too. Dollar sign, Sean Blaze Dots. Hit me off with a donation. I'm going to show you mad love in the comment section. But without further ado, I need y'all to listen to this here, because this is sad business. Monique's brother went on the Oprah show and was talking about all Monique business. Now, they supposed to be friends. I know Tyler Perry had issues with his family members. They say his father did him wrong. Oprah ain't had his father on the show telling all his business. There's plenty of people in Hollywood that she could have had on the show bring their family members up there to talk bad about people. But she did this to Monique out of all people, and that's why Monique was mad. Look, Oprah, I'm an entertainer. I'm a celebrity. It's hard enough. People want to be in my business. I don't want to share all my business with everybody. But Oprah took it upon herself to bring Monique, whole family on her show, to talk about Monique like a dog. Then turned around and stole her robe from the color purple. It was Monique that was supposed to be Sophia. Now, Oprah did a good job, but that was supposed to go to Monique. So they've been backstabbing for a long time. But like I said, man, allegedly, Monique apologized. And the only way we really gonna heal is if we go through the history of what happened. And that's what we're, what we're about to do right now. Listen at this, y'all. Download this app today. 
install it now. Alright guys, General Motors wants us to help them make the ultimate electric vehicle for games. Us? We're just players. Yeah, we don't know how to make cars. Wrong. We're TSM. We take on any challenge. Even if we don't know what we're doing, we do what we don't know the best we can. Always. He's right. I feel like I know something about cars already. I'll look up how to make one on YouTube. And I'll get us some backup. Alright chat, we need some volunteers up in here. I want everybody in on this. Let's get to work, guys. First things first, Bolo. It's gotta be safe. I got you, coach. We'll reinforce it with these ballistic shields. Ready? I just wanted a game of casual. Blast it. September 6th, 1996. Tupac Shakur is the most successful hip hop artist in the world. He's no different than the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley. Tupac was a king of rap. To his legions of fans, he's the ultimate gangster rapper. Thug life, thug life, that's my cousin. He's the angry voice of urban America. Yes, I am gonna say that I'm a thug. That's because I came from the gutter. People in the hood call him Black Jesus. They was like, he was sitting here to save us. But through the authorities and to his rivals within the world of hip hop, he's seen as a threat. You know, America eats baby. We, no matter what y'all think about me, I'm still your child, you know? He said many times, I'm going to die. I'm going to go out in a blaze of glory. And soon, that prophecy will come true. This is the story of the final hours in the life of Tupac Shakur. Los Angeles, California, September 6, 1996. It's 11.30 p.m., and Tupac Shakur leaves Lacey Studios in downtown L.A., where he's just finished shooting his latest video. After scoring six top ten singles in the last six years, Tupac is riding a wave of success that other artists can only envy. But in just 24 hours, that ride will come to a sudden and brutal end. After driving to his mansion in the LA suburb of Calabasas, Tupac, exhausted from the video shoot, steals a few hours sleep. In the morning, his cousin, Jamala Lassane, reminds him that they have to leave on a trip to Las Vegas. Because our birthdays is in the same month, he wanted me to celebrate our birthdays together in Vegas. Tupac is going to Vegas to catch a boxing match and then play at the local club. With him is his live-in girlfriend, Kidana Jones, daughter of legendary record producer, Quincy Jones. Oh. 
push, they hit the road. But Tupac is less than eager to make the trip. Pac didn't want to go. You know what I'm saying? It was obvious there was some other family issues that he wanted to deal with back in Atlanta, and he wasn't really keen on the whole Vegas trip. You know what I mean? But at the urging of his manager, Tupac goes along with the plan. It will be the last trip he ever takes. Five years earlier, back in 1991, the only plan for Tupac Shakur was making it to the top in the competitive world of hip-hop. And with his first album, Tupacalypse Now, Tupac was well on his way. From the start, he forged a powerful bond with his fans, rapping about the cold reality of life on the streets. When he put that pen to paper and he opened up his mouth on that mic, it was just... God had to be working. It seemed like every song he wrote, his his life was coming out. Like he was just taking the blood out of him. They got little Italy, little everything. They don't have a little Africa. They got the ghetto. And we think that that's ours. That's not even ours. That's just what was left over. His songs stood up for the powerless. The poor, the forgotten. Those with no political voice in society. In 1994, Shakur clearly spelled out his philosophy in an album entitled, Fuck Life. But he wanted the ones who didn't think nobody gave it to see that he gave Thug Life, the hate you gave little infants. Everything. Thug Life isn't just something for me. Thug Life is for you too. Anybody. It's, it's all the that society throws at you. Thug life is about choices. When you make the wrong choices, you end up in a life that you don't really want to be in. And that's what thug life is against all odds. I'm still making it. Tupac even had his political creed etched onto his skin. And all his tattoos meant something. He had a uh, 50 with an AK-47 tattooed on And what he believed is that 50 Black men can do anything, anything, if they put their mind to it and they were all pulling at the same time in the same direction. Fans fell in love with his swagger and with his utter refusal to tone down his message. Was it incendiary? Was it crazy? Were the kids screaming at his concerts? Were girls tearing off the shirts? Were guys like, you know, saluting with the pistol salute in the air? Yes, they were doing all that. And I mean, that's hip hop, that's rock and roll. Tupac's appeal went way beyond the ghetto, pulling in white middle-class suburban kids who enjoyed the danger he brought from the other side of the tracks. Whether it was his energy or you know, his force or his excitement or you know whatever it was, I believe that he connected with men and women and black and white and old and young. He always kind of had this ideology that he didn't need a record label. He didn't need the movies. All he needed to do was stay real. Because if he stays real and he keeps telling the kids what, what is authentic to him, that they will always relate. He will never be begging for bread. If it was attention that Tupac was looking for, he more than got it. 
but not always for the right reasons. As he climbed the ladder, some in the hip-hop community looked on with envy. Tupac Shakur was starting to make enemies. Hip-hop is about competition and about, you know, I'm better than you and, you know, I'm, I get more chicks than you. And it's very competitive, almost like a sport. And you have these, you know, these huge egos working against each other. It's a recipe for destruction. And soon, rap's obsession with rivalry and violence will hit the glitzy streets of Vegas. And someone will overthrow its reigning king. September 7, 1996, 3 p.m. Tupac Shakur has arrived in Las Vegas, Nevada, where he's scheduled to watch a boxing match and perform at a local club. It's a performance he will never get a chance to give. In less than nine hours, he'll be gunned down in cold blood. After leaving his girlfriend and cousin behind at the hotel, Tupac kills time before the boxing match by hitting the casino tables. At his side is his trusted bodyguard, Frank Alexander. Get over to the MGM, and he's gambling again on the uh, craft table, and he's winning. He's winning uh, big. He's doing really well. Yeah, I remember when we got to Vegas, I think Pac had about 10 grand in his pocket, and it was burning a hole in his pocket. Was trying to get rid of it as fast as he could. At the table, Tupac is joined by members of the Outlaw Immortals, his backup group. They were his singers and his friends that were on a lot of the songs that uh, you know he was doing at that time. As usual, everywhere Tupac goes, a crowd follows, especially women. Tupac and women. The women were a dime a dozen. They were there, the groupies, from the movie sets, from the video sets, from the studio, from Italy, <laughs> wherever. In the casino, as in life, Tupac plays the high stakes. Riding high in the charts, he can afford to gamble. But 25 years earlier, on the streets of East Harlem, New York City, few would have laid bets on the future success of young Tupac Shakur. His mother, Hafeni Shakur, a member of the radical Black Panther Party, was arrested and charged, along with 20 other members, for conspiring to blow up local buildings. I was captivated by the visualness of the Black Panther Party. I was captivated by the rationality of the Black Panther Party, and I was captivated by the sense of service of the Black Panther Party. For me, the Black Panther Party was a way to legitimately express my anger. Eventually acquitted of all charges and pregnant with Tupac, Afeni was released from jail after spending 15 months on and off behind bars. And on June 16, 1971, she gave birth to Tupac Amaru Shakur, who 
she named after a South American Incan revolutionary, the name meaning Shining Serpent. So Shining Serpent is a brilliant spirit. I actually believed in 1971 that giving a child a name empowers them. But what did not help empower young Tupac was the absence of his father, also a Black Panther, who was rarely around. What he didn't have was that masculine figure in his life for a sustained period of time that would, you know, go play ball with. Adding to that instability was crippling poverty, at times rendering Tupac and his mother homeless. But in 1986, despite those hardships, Athene moved to Baltimore and managed to enroll her son in a unique public high school, the Baltimore School for the Arts. That was a really good experience for Tupac because the other students at the school were all artists. And the environment for artists is different. It's a lot freer. It's a lot less restrictive. In particular, he fell in love with acting and with rap music. I think Tupac always believed he could have it all. He could be an incredible and talented MC. He could be an incredible and talented actor. I think he saw no sort of boundaries or limits for, you know, his potential. But in contrast to school, his life at home was stark. I had got hit by a man that I was having a relationship with. And that had a very bad re reaction on my son because I wouldn't allow my son to beat the man up. And that was a real breach for Tupac internally. In June of 1988, to protect her son from their troubled home life, Afeni sent Tupac to the other end of the country to live with a friend in Marin City, California. But the 16-year-old quickly discovered he had simply traded one nightmare for another. Marin City, one thing that they're known for is a fist fight. Tupac was a little bitty guy. Even him and fully bulked up, still a little bitty guy. Which makes it even more incredible the kind of the, the guts that this, this dude has because he fears no man, woman, child, animal. None of that. Because they can only kill you one time. Soon, Afeni joined her son in California. But any hope of a happy family reunion was made impossible by her own personal struggles. My children and I have a bond that is based on truth and trust. And the bond was broken with a lie. The lie being, I was using drugs, but I can handle this. That's a lie. That lie cost me dearly. Me talking about that period is different from them because in reality, I found drugs. That's what I did. I found the answer. My answer was crack. But despite his contempt for his mother's addiction, Tupac too drifted into the world of narcotics. He probably sold drugs for about a week. His reason for stopping was because his heart was too big. You understand? When someone brings you their wedding rings, 
and they say, here, I'm going to give you these wedding rings for some crack. Like, man, it's that bad? It's, it, it's come to this? And he quit. He said, I'd rather starve or I'm going to make this, this rap thing work. At 17, Tupac hooked up with neighborhood friend Ray Love to create his first real group, Strictly Dope. We didn't fear nothing. We would jump on the stage and perform right now. We didn't need no, no trays of food. We didn't need a special type of mic. We didn't need a, a rider. We didn't need a limo. Nah, just give me just one mic, man. Tupac's ability to use that microphone would carry him clear out of Marin City and eventually to Las Vegas, where the world's greatest rapper would be silenced forever. September 7, 1996, 6.15 p.m. Since arriving in Las Vegas almost four hours ago, Tupac Shakur and his entourage have been taking it easy, gambling at the casino and enjoying a few drinks. But in just five hours, Tupac Shakur will be gunned down by a cold-blooded killer. On the invitation of his manager and CEO of his record company, Suge Knight, Tupac heads out to see a much-anticipated heavyweight title match between Bruce Seldon and Tupac's close friend, Mike Tyson. Mike and Pac definitely had a, 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 um, a friendship, a special kind of relationship with each other. We were all Tyson fans, you know what I mean? Like, Tyson was a, was, was, was a hero for, for, you know, for us kids from the ghetto. Since their arrival, Tupac has insisted that his girlfriend Kidada and his cousin Jamala stay back at the hotel. This party is just for the boys. And I can remember us saying to each other, like, wow, why would they bring us out here and we can't even go to the fight, can't go to the parties. He don't want, he don't even want us downstairs. And he kept saying, please, he begged us, please don't go downstairs, please y'all stay up here. With his girlfriend and cousin safe and sound in their hotel room, Tupac and his bodyguard Frank Alexander head out to the MGM Grand, where the Tyson fight is about to get underway. But for Tupac, getting inside isn't so easy. There, there were a ton of people. There were a ton of people in line waiting to get into the fight. As we're walking by, you know, hey, it's Tupac. You, know, you can hear the whispering, oh, it's Pac. You get the, the, the groupies and you get the fans, you know, screaming Tupac. As they move through the crowd, adoring fans, however, are not the bodyguard's only concern. The famous rapper also has his share of enemies. His recent song, Hit Em Up, a scathing attack on fellow rapper Biggie Smalls, has stirred up anger within the hip-hop community. For Frank Alexander, it's a real concern. And I told Pac, well, Pac, man, so with that song, he was like, oh, man, you heard that, man? Yeah, that was off the hook, huh? Yeah, they playing it everywhere. But, man, it's all in the clubs, man. It's going to be bad. It's going to hot, blah, blah, blah. I was like, Pac, dude, you're going to need more security. I go, I'm not going to be able to just handle you by yourself. Alexander calls on MGM guards for additional backup. For Tupac, the man who's built a career on confrontation, 
the constant threat of violence is just part of the course. But back in 1990, only six years earlier, few had ever even heard of Tupac Shakur. Still down and out in Marin City, California, and desperately trying to break into the music business, he caught the eye of established Oakland rapper Shock G, who offered Tupac a gig as a dancer in his group, Digital Underground. He saw Pac had no home to go back to. And, you know, he, he gave him an opportunity. It was just the break Tupac had been waiting for. Suddenly, the teenager was circling the planet on a world tour. Tupac had a lot of fun running around with Digital Underground. They were calling from Japan, and they were calling from London, and they were calling from Italy, and they were calling from Australia. A natural showman, Tupac graduated from just dancing to stepping up behind the mic. The move was an immediate success. Pac was a master at it. He could take your style and do it a little bit different or a little bit better than you. And that, that was something. And so that, that's how he dealt with every situation. Soon, Tupac had his first record deal. And in November 1991, Tupacalypse Now was released. The album featured a strong and sometimes contradictory mix of violent anthems and compassionate social commentaries about poverty, broken homes, and drug abuse. If you look at his music, he had songs that were so negative about women and talked about them like they were just nothing. And then he had a whole series of other songs where he was putting all women, mothers and, 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 and black women and all women on such a pedestal. He's a complicated guy. Writing, Tupac drew from his various experiences. Raised in a politically charged Black Panther home, exposed to the fine arts, and schooled on the streets. And he was a, a poet, you know what I mean? First, I think Pac was just so in tune with himself that he could do whatever kind of song and not feel like if people hear it, they don't think I'm weak. He's a fan of himself as well. He would he would go. Uh, listen, listen to what I said. Oh my God, the boy is nice. And this is how he would say it. He'd be like, Oh my God, the boy is nice. Yo, Jamala, listen to this. This is how I kick it. And he would recite a little verse out that song. And he'd go, Oh, I'm so nice. I'm so nice. I'm killing them. I'm killing them. I'd be like, Pop, he is crazy. <laughs> Since he was a kid, Tupac had also fantasized about becoming an actor. And in 1991, he made his second dream come true. He starred in the critically acclaimed film, Juice. Juice came out when I went to go see it. The girls were screaming. I was blocked. I was to see. From the moment Juice came out, everybody was talking about pot. It was just obvious that, you know, he was on the verge of something really major. That role helped him more than the music did. He would come downstairs and, um, he would like spread his legs apart and his arms, shake his jewelry off and everything, pull his collar up and say, I'm a legend in my own time. And I would say, Dad, Pac, man, in another 10 years, you're going to be the most powerful man in America. He was like, yeah, watch and see, I am. 
things were looking good for Tupac. The following year, his mother, Athani Shakur, now clean and sober, re-entered his life. Once again, they were a family. I discovered that when a child says to you, you're my mother, when they give you authority over their lives as their parent, that they can withdraw that authority. My children withdrew it. I didn't take it back. They gave it back to me. But with the good came the bad. In 1992, Tupac was arrested for allegedly attacking a limo driver. In 1993, he was charged with assaulting another rapper with a baseball bat. In another incident, he was charged with attacking film director Alan Hughes with a weapon. In Atlanta, Georgia, he was arrested, although later released, for the alleged shooting of two off-duty policemen. It seemed that Tupac Gamaru Shakur was taking his gangster image rather too literally. Well, Pac, you got to realize, uh, you know, where he come from and his family's history with the police. And they hated Pac. They hated Tupac. I don't know if it was his, that his heart was a Black Panther heart. I don't know if that was it, but Tupac just had no patience for law enforcement. And I don't know that he had respect for law enforcement. And so I think, why were the authorities mad? Because Tupac was thumbing his nose at them and worse. Shakur, can we get a comment from you? Hell no. 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 Pac always felt like he would be a statistic. But he said, if I'm going to be a statistic and America's going to thoroughly me over, I'm going to be the ultimate statistic that I can be. In the battle between Tupac the artist and Tupac the streetwise thug, it appeared that the dark side was winning. And soon, on the streets of Vegas, on a warm summer's night, that darkness will swallow him whole. September 7th, 1996, 8.35 p.m. Tupac Shakur has just finished watching a boxing match at the MGM Grand, where his close friend, Mike Tyson, pulverized his opponent, Bruce Selden, in less than two minutes. Backstage, Tupac is accompanied by Suge Knight, his manager and the owner of his record company, Death Row. With them is Tupac's security guard, Frank Alexander, and various Death Row Records associates. It's clear to everyone that Tupac Shakur is still revved up from the fight. This is going on. 50 As the group enters the MGM Grand's lobby, one of Shook Knight's death row employees passes on a message to Tupac Shakur. One of Shook's guys, his name is Trevon, came over and whispered in Tupac's right ear. Trevon has spotted a man in the hotel lobby that he claims robbed him a few weeks earlier. The man is also a member of the Southside Crips sworn rivals of another big LA gang, the Bloods, with whom Death Row is said to be affiliated. Tupac Shakur, the king of gangster rap, decides to teach the man a lesson. And Pac just ran up on him and... 
fired up by the boxing match, the death row entourage, including its CEO, Shook Knight, joined Tupac in the Phoenix Rally. In the chaos, Frank Alexander pulls Tupac from the brawl. I grabbed him and got him out of the fight. Orlando Anderson's on the ground and everybody's kicking at him, beating down. Two years earlier, in New York City, Tupac was involved in a different kind of battle. A fight for his very life. On November 30th, 1994, in the lobby of a Times Square recording studio, he was robbed of $40,000 worth of jewelry and shot five times at close range by a group of unidentified black men. While police wrote it off as a random robbery, Tupac saw it as an act of retaliation by one of his many enemies within the hip-hop community. And personally to me, you know, it could have been a setup, or it could have been whoever came through the door. Because Pac never thought nobody would do nothing to him. He thought he represented the black community and nobody would... No, no, no. I don't go down like that. That's why I try to get over to him. They don't go down like that. I don't care who you is. They'll take you down. Tupac had become a moving target. His aggressive music had angered both police and community leaders. His verbal attacks on other rappers had created friction within the world of hip-hop. As a rich and powerful black man, everybody was lining up to take a shot at Tupac Shakur. But he was just a cat that just refused to bag down. You know, that was just him. He just refused to bag down. I loved it about him, but I also knew that can be a downfall too, you know? And that's what I was really trying to give to him, that you can't just run up on anybody, man. They'll kill you out here, for real. Tupac knew where he lived. He knew what the system was. He knew what he agreed with and what he didn't agree with. But he also knew that if he didn't make an effort to make capital in a capitalist society, he wasn't going to be able to do anything that he wanted. You understand? Tupac's image as a thug was catching up with him. The shooting had left him with five bullet wounds, the most serious of which was a severed artery in his thigh. Tupac was paying the price for not only writing about our violent culture, but also for being a part of it. This is all about my image. This has nothing to do with me. This is all about my image. It's like MTV, all the papers, they're building me up. Now they're destroying me on the same image that they perpetuated. You know what I'm saying? I'm selling records. This is what I do for a living. I'm selling records. Don't get it twisted. This is not my real life. This is not how my real life is supposed to be. I'm not supposed to be really having all these villains in my life. Well, you can't blame a rapper for murders unless you're going to blame Arnold Schwarzenegger for all the people he killed and terminated. You know what I'm saying? How you going to blame a rapper when we only speak it and then you got actors who show it, but you don't blame them? Less than five hours after his operation and against doctor's advice, Tupac Shakur checked himself out of the hospital. He had other problems to deal with. The rapper was due in court to face rape charges brought by a 19-year-old woman. Charges he angrily denied. Why am I in court? You know what I'm saying? Get my life ripped apart. But I'm here, I'm going to go through it just to show that I have faith in the American system. But soon I'm going to go crazy. Acquitted of sodomy and weapons charges, Tupac was instead convicted of forcibly touching the woman's buttocks, a felony sex abuse charge. He was given the maximum sentence, up to four and a half years behind bars. 
to his legions of fans, it seemed that the law was making an example of Tupac Shakur. Pop was the one that had the biggest mouth and was saved the loudest and saved to anybody. You know what I'm saying? It was times where he said it even to his mother. I'm loud. I didn't shut up. But I didn't think they were going to take it too serious. When you keep talking out, I didn't think it was going to be a matter of life and death. While at the Clinton Correctional Facility in upstate New York, Tupac seemed to undergo a startling transformation. The king of gangster rap publicly denounced thug life. Well, you got to realize when Pac was in jail, you know, jail will make you start thinking. And you're going to do anything you can to get out of jail, you know? So, to me, when he denounced thug life, it was like, uh, you know, I'm only playing. Let me get up out of here. But getting out of there wasn't so simple. Obviously, Pac was in a, a dire position, being incarcerated, and, you know, um, his money being dwindled down because of all the cases, and, you know what I mean, fighting his bogus lawsuits and all of that. In exchange for signing with Death Row and taking him on as his manager, Suge Knight promised to get Tupac out on bail. And soon enough, the all-powerful godfather of hip-hop made it happen. I never saw the contract. I just remember the phone call. You know what I'm saying? Calling us saying, you know, I'm on death row now. You know, I just signed with death row. They tried to control Tupac. Even when they sent him to death row, they thought Shook was going to be able to control him. But, you know, that was just like putting a flame with some dynamite. That's going to blow. Death Row put Tupac up at the Posh Peninsula Hotel in L.A. to recuperate, re-energize, and get back on his feet. He was coming off a number one album with Be Against the World and a number one record with Dead Mama, so he was doing his own thing. It's not like he needed Death Row, but in a sense, he needed them at that moment because it's like, hey, they gave me a $1.4 million bail. You know what I'm saying? I need to get out of jail. The master agitator was free and eager to get back to what he knew best, holding up a mirror to society's ills. Once he got out, it was like all that anger that was built up while he was sitting in jail came out all at one time. But soon, in a hail of bullets, that mirror will be forever shattered. September 7th, 1996. 9 p.m. Las Vegas, Nevada. After beating up an alleged Crips gang member in the lobby of the MGM Grand Hotel, Tupac and his entourage make their way back to their rooms to change before heading to Club 662, where Tupac is scheduled to play. In less than three hours, Tupac Shakur will be left for dead. I remember Tupac coming back to the hotel and, um, he was really excited. So he came upstairs and he was like, Jamala, you wouldn't believe it. I did a one-two on a dude. I knocked him out. I did a Mike Tyson on him. He didn't really get into details about who he was fighting or what the fight was about, but he was really happy that he got a chance to test his ring out on somebody's face. <laughs> While getting dressed, 
Tupac decides not to wear his bulletproof vest, a garment not out of place on a man with so many enemies. I remember Castro saying to Pac, you know, uh, you should put your vest on. You should wear your vest tonight. You know, Pac saying, nah, it's too hot. I don't want to wear my vest tonight. It's too hot for that. Normally, he wouldn't leave without it. But this time, he'd left it. He didn't have it with him. After the short pit stop, Tupac and the others wind their way across the strip to a mansion belonging to Shug Knight, Tupac's manager and the owner of Death Row Records. Shug and Tupac disappear briefly while the others wait impatiently. I don't really know what partner Shug was doing at the time. You know what I mean? I just know we was waiting. I was ready to go. Almost everything in Shug Knight's mansion is red. The official color of the mob Piru, an offshoot of the LA gang, the Bloods. He wore a lot of red. You know, it was his choice of color. He was from Compton. His hood, his set were of, uh, you know, Bloods. So by him wearing red, if that's what he was representing, then that was on him. Some felt that by associating with a record label connected to the Bloods, Tupac was making himself yet more enemies. This time, with the Bloods' arch rivals, the Southside Crips. But his bodyguard, Frank Alexander, saw it differently. Tupac uh, was not gang-related. If you want to represent a color to Tupac, it would have been green. And that's the color of mine. After about half an hour, with Tupac and the others ready to leave for Club 662, Tupac makes an unusual request to his bodyguard. I was walking to the car with Shug and with Tupac, and I was actually opening up the back door to get in the back seat. And Pac stopped and said, no, take the keys and go drive uh, the Lexus with the outlaws in it because we're going to be drinking and you're going to be the designated driver to drive us back after we've uh, finished partying over 662. Tupac's last-minute arrangement comes at the urging of Shook Knight, who wants to talk privately with his star rapper. The procession snakes its way back to the Vegas Strip for the concert at Club 662, a concert he will never get to play. Less than a year earlier, Tupac had seemed invincible. He'd survived a point-blank shooting in New York. He'd survived jail time in a maximum security prison and he'd emerged more popular than ever. His first album with Death Row, All Eyes On Me, took him to the top. Within three weeks, the album went platinum. Yet, despite the success, Tupac decided that when the time came, he would not renew his contract with Death Row Records. Tupac was ready to leave a uh, record label, and there was a reason for it. So, you know, that, that reason, only his mom and immediate people within his camp would uh, know what that reason was. Privately, Tupac believed that Death Row was not giving him a fair cut of the money he was bringing in. But Death Row was not Tupac's only problem. He was also fighting with an old rival, New York-based rapper Biggie Smalls. He'd attacked repeatedly in his songs. 
their feud fueled rumors of a war between East Coast and West Coast rappers. Well, the East Coast, West Coast beef was like uh, a mirage. It wasn't true, you know, because all pockets from the East Coast, all the outlaws from the East Coast, you know, it was just a beef that he had with Big. Tupac had spent the last six years fighting with the cops, the courts, other rappers, and now violent gangs. It was getting increasingly hard to tell his friends from his enemies. Tupac had a lot more enemies than just, you know, Joe Blow rapper across the country. He comes from a family of people that don't just talk, they act. And they're educated. Pac's big mistake was speaking truth to power. And that's one thing when you're talking about a faceless government or the president. It's a whole other thing when you're talking about people within the industry that you work or people within the streets. He didn't just speak truth to power when it came to the cops. He said about the dope dealers. He spoke truth to power all the time. When you have that level of honesty, they don't want you here. No one does. And now, as Tupac rides to Club 662 with Shook Knight, he has no idea that one of those enemies is about to strike back. Once we got to Flamingo, we made a right-hand turn. We came to a stoplight, which was Cobalt. As Tupac's bodyguard follows in the car behind, the convoy inches forward. And as usual, Tupac draws the attention of his fans. Then, suddenly, out of nowhere, a white Cadillac. As they got closer to the BMW, the arm came out and the gun just started firing. Shook's car is hit with a spray of bullets. Four of them rip into Tupac's body. Another grazes Shook Knight's head. Right after the Cadillac shot into the car, I thought they were dead. My reaction was to run up to the car and, and stare at the car took off. Shook's bullet-riddled BMW makes a hard U-turn and races off in the opposite direction. I didn't know what to think. Uh, it, 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 was, it was a fog. It was a haze. Were these real bullets? Did they really shoot these guys? Badly damaged, the car soon blows its tires and breaks down close by. And for the second time in his short life, Tupac Shakur is looking death in the face. September 7th, 1996. Las Vegas. At 11.17 p.m., a hail of bullets cut down superstar rapper Tupac Shakur. Mortally wounded with a punctured lung, he's rushed to University Medical Center, where he undergoes two emergency operations. His right lung is removed to stop internal bleeding, and he's induced into a coma, a coma from which he will never awake. Just went through this in New York. 
10 o'clock tomorrow and we would have quite a night and um, yeah, it started. People started arriving and what I remember is that there was never a time where somebody wasn't there with him. When I went in, he was, you know, had a dangerous coma. I never thought he was going to die. Never. Didn't, not one time did I think he was actually going to die. When I first seen Tupac on the hospital bed and he had all these tubes connected to him and I knew then that he was going to have to fight for his life. For six days, Tupac remains in a coma. Throughout, his family gathers in an...